0: Hey guys, Michael here. A quick note before the podcast begins. We recorded this episode back on March 11th when the world was a different place. We were planning on publishing it to time with the release of A Quiet Place 2 and then doing a patron exclusive episode on the sequel as well. Now that its release has obviously been pushed back, we decided to go ahead and just publish this episode now. And instead of Quiet Place 2 being our patron exclusive, we recorded an episode on Scott Pilgrim vs. The World. So if you want to hear our Scott Pilgrim episode, you can join our Beyond the Screenplay Patreon and listen to it today. The link is in the show notes. We'll be back next week with an episode on Jurassic Park, so keep a lookout for that. But in the meantime, here's our episode on A Quiet Place. Hi, I'm Michael, and welcome to Beyond the Screenplay. Today we are talking about A Quiet Place, the 2018 film directed by John Krasinski, screenplay by Brian Woods, Scott Beck, and John Krasinski. I'm joined by the Lessons from Screenplay team, Trisha Arand.
1: Hello, everyone.
0: Brian Bittner. Hi. And Alex Calleros. Hello. Uh, So A Quiet Place is a really interesting movie, and the video for it was kind of a special video. Uh, So to give some kind of background for the video we made for Lessons from Screenplay, way back when, in a previous life, 10 plus years ago, I worked with a friend of mine uh, to launch a video series called Soundworks Collection. And it was this thing where we would go and shoot interviews with sound designers and sound mixers working on all the biggest Hollywood films. They would talk about the sound design techniques that they used. Uh, and it was really fun. It was the first time I got to go on the lots and like, see what it was like to mix a movie in an actual soundstage. Like Skywalker was, sound. Skywalker That sound. was pretty exciting. So cool. Yeah. Trent Reznor's house. Went to Trent. Yes. Hans Zimmer studio. I'm still so sorry. <laughs> Brian will hate you forever. <laughs> um, But one of the first videos we did and one of the first people that we met were these two sound designers, Eric Adal and Ethan Van And so fast forward 10 years later, A Quiet Place is coming out. I have lessons from the screenplay. Uh, I'm talking to my friend, Michael Coleman, who's the one that started Soundworks Collection. And he says he's getting ready to do a thing on A Quiet Place. Would I be interested in chatting with them also? And I was like, yes, that's such a cool idea because this is a movie where sound is examined in all the different ways. It's part of the storytelling and it's always part of the storytelling Mm -hmm. and sound uh, in, in films, but it's obviously so front and center here that I was like, I think this would be a cool opportunity to go and talk to the people designing the sound and learn about how they use sound to tell the story. Um, And so that's what we did. We got to go to the Warner brothers a lot. It was me and Alex and our friend Terrence. Uh, And we shot interviews with Ethan and Eric and they were super generous with their time Uh, And it became this cool video, Um, and it's it it was a cool way into this weird movie that also has a weird script. Like Mm -hmm. the formatting Mm -hmm. of the script is super fascinating and bizarre and out there, and we can get into that. Um, But so yeah, so that was kind of the background of uh, creating this video, and I think it's a quiet place remains such a cool study of the impact sound can have. As I've said before, I'm always looking for examples of very clear uh, touchstones. Like when you're trying to create something and you just want to purely look at how does sound affect storytelling, you can watch a quiet place and it's just front and center, all the different ways that it, it affects the storytelling.
2: Mm -hmm. I always like a movie that can call a mainstream audience's attention to parts of the craft because sound is the invisible aspect of filmmaking and usually, people only notice sound when it's like, "Oh, like Transformers should get like the sound award because it was really loud." And there's a lot, <laughs> right. there's a lot of sound. Yeah. But I think a Quiet Place is really interesting because it is, as you said, Michael, sound is such an integral part of the storytelling itself, and it's it's it, it affects the characters and it affects everything. So it's it's cool for people to have that experience of like, "Oh, wow! I didn't realize." How much i was missing sound Mm -hmm. until it was taken away for long stretches and then when it comes back it's really intense you know Mm -hmm. there's parts of this movie where there'll be stretches that are very silent and then you'll hear some music playing in an earbud and it's like almost overwhelming it's like whoa music like it's really loud and intense and it's just like a normal song but because you've had this absence for so Mm -hmm. long things take on a like a bigger
3: i don't know weight yeah. Or, or, or like um, Regan having the hearing aid in her ear and you hear this sort of like low rumble and you don't necessarily notice you're hearing anything until she takes it out and you yes. hear literally nothing. Right. And then it's like just playing with those like very soft dynamics. That scene's brilliant where she takes off
2: mm-hmm. when she's trying on the new hearing aid. It, it's It's one of the most remarkable scenes I've seen in a while where you're with this deaf character mm-hmm. in the kind of like horror of the silence you know Mm -hmm. just like absolute silence and there's no escape from it
1: and i love what the sound designers said uh in your interview with them and then you michael and then you ended up putting it in the video which is just that sound you know comes in through the back door in a way where like we often unconsciously hear and this is similar to what you were saying alex we don't necessarily pay attention to what it is that we hear. We automatically sort of assume, but we have so much more range, right. With what like we can hear than versus what we can see. There's so much that we can hear that we cannot see. And mm-hmm. so like, you know, even just sitting, we in this apartment, like we can hear, we have headphones on, but like <laughs> other, if we weren't, we would hear the traffic outside and we would hear like maybe a plane going over and we would hear like, you know, maybe the air conditioning that's on and even just like all of these, the neighbors all of these tiny sounds that are creating a soundscape that extends so far beyond the boundaries of what it is that we can see. And so good sound design is able to build the world out far beyond the boundaries of the set that someone is in. And so this movie does that spectacularly. And the other thing that I think that they do, that they mentioned, um, the sound designers mentioned in the interview with them, is that we actually tend to trust our ears more than our eyes because of that thing there's like this reptilian brain thing I think it was something you were talking about where like if you hear a sound down a dark alleyway you like immediately like it triggers your fight or flight or whatever you can't see what that thing is but immediately it like sort of sneaks into your brain and like and triggers this like deep emotional um psychological thing and so like it's actually I, I wish I had the data on it but if we see if we hear something versus see something we actually that are incongruous right and we see this sometimes in editing where like we'll get a pre-lap audio mm-hmm. from a scene that mm-hmm. hasn't happened yet we're paying more attention to that thing than what it is that we're seeing and we actually tend to trust our ears more than we trust our eyes
3: yeah i had a really weird experience with this where i was in an old apartment i lived in which was a studio apartment and the door was locked and i was on the phone with my friend and i heard someone walk past the apartment, but they the floorboards, I guess, were like connected to inside the apartment. Mm-hmm. So it sounded like somebody was walking right next to me. Mm-hmm. Horrifying. My mm-hmm. dog didn't react. The door was locked, but still my body went into like this right. weird mm-hmm. mode right. where I was like, logically, there's no way <laughs> there's anybody in this apartment. But like my body just kind of went, but I hear somebody. So now I'm going to freak out a little bit. It was really strange.
1: Yeah. And it goes back to, we were also talking about sort of this thing with Blade Runner, right? Which is like you know, you're building this like set and you want to create the feeling of like all of this life that's happening all around it. And so in Blade Runner, they do a lot of it with light. I think they do almost that thing, almost that exact same thing that creates this really built out and lived in world with sound in a quiet place. It's so cool.
3: You have to watch this movie in surround sound because like there, it's like one of the best surround sound mixes I've heard in terms of actually making you feel like you are in this space and not just like, oh, when a car goes by, you hear it behind you or something like that. Like it feels like you are surrounded by the movie, which is really cool. Am I the only one here assault in the theater? I saw it in the theater. You did okay. Yeah, because like I had this feeling of like I couldn't even open like my and I even brought snacks that I knew were going to be quiet, <laughs> but still it was like everybody <laughs> is so quiet. So then like during the waterfall scene, it's like everyone eats. <laughs> like, right, <that's>... right, right, right. <laughs> it, it, it's a cool movie theater experience because I think people aren't
2: usually engaged that way where a movie is that silent, like tr- with true silence for long periods where you actually can hear every little. Sound in the theater—it's it, it creates a different atmosphere. Yeah,
0: one of the great things about doing all this work with SoundWorks Collection was getting to uh, you know obviously hear the sound designers talk about the importance of sound, and it really helped me appreciate how important it is and how mm. uh, integral it is to the cinema experience. And I think that's a thing that we kind of generally know, but it, it was cool getting this deep appreciation. But you know, we talk about. A movie can have bad cinematography. It can be shot on an iPhone, but it doesn't feel cheap until the sound design is bad. If you put amazing sound design with a poorly shot movie, it feels like a movie. You still engage with it like a movie. And sound really is kind of the thing that brings it all together and brings a movie to life. And that's happening constantly. and, And that's what's so cool about A Quiet Place. You know, you were saying, Alex... Uh, like Transformers movies sometimes get attention just because they're so loud and it's so interesting because Ethan and Eric have done all the Transformers movies also (laughs) right? and they were really excited to get to do something like A Quiet Place where I think a lot of people might think oh it's easy because there's not that much sound going on but there's always sound going on Mm -hmm. and when there's no other sounds happening when there is no dialogue or explosions to put constantly like you're just kind of laid bare Uh, and so I think it's also a good movie to look at if you're making a film and just kind of getting into filmmaking to look at what is the sound that's happening when there's quote-unquote no
2: sound because there's right. always There's something. always sound and there's actually very few moments when it's true, pure silence. Yeah.
0: And like that may... Like you know, talking to them in person, they were emphatic about like we actually did that because that's a thing that you don't m- do. Never, yeah. you always yeah. have room tone or
3: something. Well, well, I talked about it with um uh, Star Wars Episode Two right before the the sonic charges oh, go right. off. Like my brain thought the speakers went out in the theater because <laughs> like, and I mentioned this on on our Episode Two podcast, but it was just like you have zero sound before you have this big boom, and it was so affecting because. You, like you said, you literally never have no sound in a movie. Well, it was
2: funny because I remember when The Last Jedi came out, AMC Theaters had to post some like notices being like, there is a scene in this movie where the sound cuts oh, out really? intentionally. Please do not complain about the sound <laughs> dropping out. Because wow. people during the, like, during the whole like Laura Dern... The whole light... dome maneuver? Yeah, the whole dome maneuver, the light speed. Yeah. Destroying everything. People were like walking out and being like, the sound went out. For a second. (laughs) It's like, uh, people, like, this is the best moment. You just thought it was a
3: problem. Uh, Anyway. Oh, speaking of people being annoying and sound, uh, one of my other disturbing experiences in the theater of this movie was hearing the guy next to him trying to impress his girlfriend by when there's no dialogue for the first, you know, however long of the movie. I just hear him, I didn't hear the entire thing, what it said, but I just heard him go, no script. All I could think was... Oh, my God. Right, because people think script equals dialogue. Right. Do you have any idea how hard it is to make a script for this movie? Wow. No script. so, can we talk about the script for this movie for a few minutes?
1: Because... In the screenwriting community, when this script, like, got out, basically, um, and of course, as you point out in the video, Michael, they didn't end up shooting, like, it, there was a lot of rewriting that happened after the, the original Beckett Wood script, like, was written and everything like that, because they started working on it long, long before, like, John Krasinski came on board and they were able to get the movie made, um, but... What they did with formatting of the script, you know, ultimately probably isn't going to change things, but it did really open up a lot of conversations about why in the world do we write certain things the way that we write? Because they were dealing with this challenge of we have to get this past readers And the the rules of like how screenplays are supposed to look on the page are so rigid. And so like, you know, really when you have not a lot of dialogue, you know, a reader is when you look at a page and I I judge a lot of screenplay competitions. I read a lot of scripts. And like when you look at a page and you see just blocks of text of, of action, you're like, oh, this person doesn't know what they're doing. Right. And. Because it's not broken up with dialogue or whatever. It's not broken up in the ways that like you're trained to. Like, you know, when I was in college, they were like no more than four lines of action. And so I still like find myself prejudiced against like larger blocks of text than Mm -hmm. that and and stuff like that. And so really, it was cool what Beck and Woods did when they just were like, we absolutely don't have dialogue. And so for Pages and pages and pages of this, and so what in the world do we do to keep the readers? Because they are your first gatekeepers. What do we do to keep them reading? And what they did was awesome. They messed with it. They messed with it all the way, like, hardcore. Yeah,
3: <laughs> yeah. For for context, if you like, if you haven't read the script, it's really the original script because you can read the Krasinski script now. Actually, it is. Oh, on oh interesting. Um, but the Beck and Wood script is it has it has things like pictures and stuff which is cool like the monopoly board they're playing right And, and like that's definitely helpful to give yourself a visual and stuff but that's not necessarily playing with the medium of script that's just adding pictures to it but the way they really play with the medium is by Playing with font size and bold yeah. and underlining anything that r- relates to noise uh, yes. relates to sound. And We cover most of this in in the video, which you know was one of the first videos that I that I wrote that we wrote yeah. together. So it was just like it's still like emblazoned in my brain. <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah, and then like at one point it's just like one page per like, and then he gets ten so feet from cool. the shed and five feet from the shed, and then snap, you know, uh, and and it's it's sort of like raised some questions in the screenwriting community which was definitely this is interesting and cool but should people be doing this and i think the answer is like no like maybe don't try to make your scripts cartoons like that's a little weird but
1: right you're not actually writing a graphic novel so there's no reason to like chase it all the way down that road right but just if you have an unconventional story maybe you need to get creative about what's going on and Mm
0: -hmm. yeah Well, and that—that I think we're also at a point where their screenplays are used for different things at different stages, right? And so, like for pitching it and trying to sell it, like the selling version of the script, this seems to be a kind of more of a trend that's happening, uh, where you can get like experimental with it to try to convey even stronger what the final product will be like. Cause that's something that if you read screenplays, a lot of times that isn't conveyed the tone and the pace, especially pacing when there's like no dialogue. And, and and I think that's why that that series of pages, like you were talking about Brian of like each step that he takes to this thing, like there's one word per page. So you have to spend the time to turn the page. And that kind of gives you the feeling that hopefully will be happening on screen.
1: Yeah. And it, It reminds me of a couple of things. One was, if you've ever read the book, um, Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close, um, which messes kind of with the novel form in the sense that it puts like pictures and then that you sometimes you'll turn the page there, but it's, it's actually very similar. And I'd be curious to have asked them this question at the time, but there's a character who doesn't speak. And so the character in that book that doesn't speak, he has a notepad and he writes down like single phrases and single words, and so there'll be a character, you know, just like a block of text where it's like I, I, I was talking to him, and then I asked this question, and then you turn the page and it says the, you know, the the two word phrase that he wrote back on his notepad and like handwriting, and so the the blank space on the page really gives those words more impact and weight. But I think also, and this is an ongoing question that the screenwriting community has have not to get like too screenwritery for a second, but In action screenplays, as we all know, one, you know, like the like one line on a page equals one second of screen time. And then therefore one page equals one minute of screen time. We all know in action scripts that's not true. It's basically never been true. And so with this movie that's essentially an action thriller, like I recently finished an action script. It is 80 pages. It will not be an 80 minute movie. I can guarantee that right now. But that's the whole thing. So Mm -hmm. if you have a little bit of space to play with, obviously you don't want your screenplay to be 140 pages necessarily. But if you have a little bit of space to play with on the page and like page count to play with and you have an action sort of story, I don't know. I think this is an interesting approach.
3: Well, I think part of the issue is... Uh, like um, Bong Joon-ho and Kurosawa, like they would actually storyboard their movies ahead of time. So they are basically being their own cinematographers before the movie has even started shooting. They're Mm -hmm. saying, here's what these shots are going to look like. And you can use a drawing to say, here's what I'm actually envisioning for this shot. And it absolutely comes through in both their movies. Everything looks so purposeful. Um, But obviously most people aren't doing that. Most people are just, We have the medium of text to communicate an entire movie. And what you can communicate pretty well is dialogue. Yeah. And what you can communicate pretty well is setting. What you can't communicate as well is action. And what you can't communicate almost at all is sound and music. Exactly. Uh, You know, you can say like the music swells or you can say Elvis Costello's Allison starts playing where it's like (laughs) someone (laughs) have to go find that song now and like put it on. Uh, And I think that that's, that's just an unfortunate uh, product of the medium of screenwriting is that you are... It's also cool that you're like, what can you do with just text? Um, but it's unfortunate that basically you you have to communicate so many things right. about what a movie is. And you don't have to. You can leave some of that to the director, obviously. I mean, you're going to leave some of that to the director. But, uh, but you have to communicate so much about what you want your movie to be using just a white page with black text on it.
1: Right. And that's the challenge. Yeah. yeah.
3: And I think... I think
0: there is an evolution happening and I think it's probably going to continue to happen. Like I think at the end of the day, you're still going to need a a traditional screenplay because it's, it's also a production document. Like there's there's a lot,
2: there's a lot about the traditional format that seems so limiting, but also once you get to production, it's like, no, I need to know like this, the page breakdown and the scene numbers. And if it's too experimental, it's like, how do I plan this as a AD? You know, it's like, you need some sort of formu- formulaic structure there but i will say that i do i do think there's something to what they did with the quiet place script as an as an editor and a, as a director it's it's really gratifying to like get to read something where it's like the editing is coming through you know it's mm-hmm. like it's like the the direction is coming through and it's it is hard for me to read scripts sometimes where it's like i'm trying to watch this movie in my head as i'm reading it and i don't know if i'm clear on really the intention in those areas you know it's it's because the action is being written in one line but is it really that brief (laughs) or is this like is this a whole page equivalent of action in this one line uh it makes it hard to like watch the movie in your head in those instances so absolutely yeah yeah this episode is brought to you by visit williamsburg in Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff,
3: a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want?
1: Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com.
0: Yeah, well, and it's also interesting, kind of, the, the evolution that the script. Uh, had as it went, you know, as it evolved from the pitch document to the final film, the John Krasinski version and the things he came in um, to do. And I was listening to an interview with Beck and Woods and they said they'd kind of had this idea and they would kind of work on it for a while and then put it in a drawer and then like a little bit later come back to it. And it was kind of evolving. And uh, you know, they had the the conceit of what if it was a movie with no dialogue at all Mm -hmm. uh, and the horror aspect of it but they said it wasn't until they landed on but it's also about a family who's not communicating with each other they realized there was the thematic resonance Mm. and it was like okay now it's a story um, and so it was cool hearing about that, and then kind of how they, you know, it got into the hands of John Krasinski, who also showed it to his wife Emily Blunt, and they were like over the moon about it. And they are amazing, and like they're just so yeah, adorable <laughs> in real life mm. and in this movie. <laughs> the Krants, <and> the can't, <laughs> can't help but like love them. And so it was also interesting hearing the changes that uh, John Krasinski wanted to make, and like one of the the strongest openings i feel like of any movie recently yes. is is this yes. opening where the child ends up with the toy that makes the noise mm-hmm. and it reveals well, why there's so Well that opening sequence
2: does so much. It because it, it introduces the world and introduces the rules of the world. It introduces the family really well, and it's also the the character's ghost. It's it's yep. it's setting up the trauma that defines the character relationships for the rest of the movie.
3: Yeah, it does so much with almost no dialogue. Obviously, ASL is dialogue, but like there's still not a lot of that either. Right, you know? mm-hmm. but you are getting. You are getting, I know, Alex, you said, like, you get kind of annoyed whenever the camera pans over newspaper headlines and stuff in a movie. Yeah. But I think I, this it, the opening doesn't bother me so much as, like, when it cuts to his base.
2: Right, the, white right. the whiteboard. The <laughs> whiteboard. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> but it's like, what are you going to do? I, I know, wanna... <laughs> you know. I give it a lot of credit because it's like, yeah, if they're not going to talk about anything, then you do have to kind of cheat at some point and just be like, here's the headline, here's the whiteboard about the problem they're trying to solve. And, you know, it's. Here's him crossing off the like radio frequencies he's tried already. It's been like 400 days, but he's still trying. I don't know. Yeah, I think. think... (laughs) (laughs) Don't think too hard about.
0: it. Yeah, right.
3: No, I think that there is this sort of like we've we basically have what we call the up, prologue. Now Mm -hmm. you know, like where the first 10 minutes of your movie is like something heartbreaking happens, and that's where the characters are, and that's very effective. Um, And I think in Up you're basically setting up who this one character is. You're not setting up too much else about the world. You're setting up sort of that character's journey. Yeah. Um, and then you have something like searching where you're setting up the characters, but also the format of the movie. um. Because obviously the intro is told the, re- the way the rest of the movie is. Uh, but I think that, as you said, Alex, like this is doing even more. It's setting up the world. It's setting up the characters. It's setting up the rules of the world. And it's setting up it's getting you used to the idea that you are going to be watching a quiet, not a silent movie, but a quiet movie <laughs> mm-hmm. such that when
0: that the, the siren goes off on that thing, there's oh, like God, yeah. just
3: dread and you have the, the what um Eric and Ethan talked about the sonic POV, mm-hmm. which is that you are hearing what, uh, what the father is hearing and then you're hearing what Regan is hearing which is nothing. She just sees yes. something happening and then you're cutting back and forth. You do that with the aliens. You do that with like other characters where you are hearing like the the headphones. Like mm-hmm. you have mm-hmm. one headphone goes on and you hear kind of half the music and then both headphones go on and now you're hearing Eric Clapton like in full right, <laughs> stereo. Right, you know? yeah. Uh, and that's, that's a really impressive thing.
0: And, and I think that it's highlighting that aspect of it that, that sound can put you in the perspective of a character yes. right. is yes, super yes, important. Because yes. right. I think that's, you know, Saving Private Ryan kind of introduced this, you know, the shell shock thing yeah. right. Right. where the, the storming the beach and then the explosion goes off and Tom Hanks is like, you can't hear anything. It's all muffled. And that puts you in that character's perspective.
1: Which every movie does now. Right. right.
0: Yeah. And so it, it is cool just how, and it's so like simple. And again, it's, it's a thing that you, could write into a screenplay now, I think, and people would know what that means. Right, and suddenly you're seeing this moment from this character's perspective. I think it's a very powerful tool.
3: And then you have something like the uh, when the lantern gets knocked over, it sounds like an explosion, <laughs> and no, at no point are the sound designers of the movie or the audience going, "Oh, that's what it sounds like when a lantern knocks over." Like that's not the point. The it's point, emotional, right? It's the emotional point sound. is this is the the resonant, the emotional resonance or the or the impact of this moment is... Loud and meaningful, so we need to kind of ramp it up a little bit. And you don't want to do that too much, obviously, because then anytime someone steps on a stair, it's like creak, you know. Right. Um, But like to do that on a on just pick a moment like that and then to really hit that sound hard. I like
2: they use up their quota of that in that scene because the raccoons falling also sounds insane because they (laughs) scream (laughs) as (laughs) they (laughs) fall. It's like definitely like an alien scream as they yeah. Yeah. But then they kind of like then it's like earned from that point on. Right. And
0: just just to return quickly to that opening sequence. That was one of the changes that was made in the developing process of giving it to John Krasinski and, and talking with him. Because originally, the fact that the family had this tragedy happen to them was kind of revealed slowly over the course of the screenplay. Mm. It was kind of like a reveal. Um, but John Krasinski was like, no, we need to like put yeah. that in the beginning. We need to know what's at stake. We need to understand what the family is dealing with. And that is so critical because also then nothing happens for like so true a
2: right pretty long. Well, part of and a like movie. it's really important. It's important for a movie like this to like do something like that early. Yes. So you're really nervous because if you're gonna kill like the youngest, cutest kid in the opening sequence, then yeah. that means you're willing to probably kill another cute kid. Right. <laughs> so like, and it's, it's really important for a movie like this. And that's yeah. what Children of Men does so well. It's yeah. like, yeah, we killed Julianne Moore. There
1: yeah.
3: have to be Good stakes. Luck. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in the original script, it was actually that the flashback is he, the father's driving with two daughters, uh, one of whom is April, who is Reagan, and the other whom is Iris, who is basically Bo, just like the, the kid who is gone. Um, and then there's a car accident, which the father isn't even at fault for but then Iris dies and April's ears are bleeding and she can't hear anything Whoa. and that's oh, how she becomes deaf uh and then the the tension which the tension is still here between Regan and Lee of, of, the, of like do you blame her for it do you still love her all that kind of stuff the tension comes from I think the daughter blaming the father and the father feeling guilty for getting mm. into this accident because he was kind of not paying attention but it was still like someone ran a red light kind of thing. Right, right. Mm. Um and then and then that tension comes from that moment. So it's a it is a cool moment but I agree like just putting it all up front uh, you know uh, accomplishes so much.
1: It's so important because I feel like the main thing so if you are going to make a low budget movie essentially which I feel like a lot of us have or want to do you are put in a position of you want to create something special, unique, interesting about it. You don't want it to feel gimmicky, right? And so you also, so you want to you have that thing that you can go into a pitch, you know, and say like, okay, so it's this thing or whatever, you know, it's Bird Box, which like wanted so hard to be a quiet place. <laughs> <And> <laughs> like, but like you, you go in and you say you have like, here's the weird, you know, high concept thing about this, but at the same time, and, and that might get your movie sold and that's good, Right. So like we talked to Anish and Seb about about searching and and that kind of thing. Like but and they did a great job in that movie of then actually telling a story and and not making the audience feel like they're part of a weird experiment because that's mm-hmm. the thing that audiences don't like to feel. Right. And so a movie like Searching or this or whatever it is like could easily feel as an audience member you're like okay well you're doing the gimmick now and like the gimmick is the gimmick and so if there if it doesn't feel like there's a real story being told if it doesn't feel like there are stakes then an audience is going to immediately check out so front-loading Right, this horrible tragedy that happens as a result of like so starting it after the apocalypse. It's also just elegant exposition, right? Yeah. Like yeah. we, I think we were talking about this in um Arrival in the Arrival podcast where we were going like, you know, normally the alien invasion happens at minute thirty or right. whatever. It's already happened. It's done. It's over. We're now focused on this really human story and how they're going to deal with it. There's this horrible tragedy. And then it goes from there and it gives the characters room to breathe. And it also makes it not a gimmick. And the fact that they made one of the central characters death and gave her a special skill to survive in a soundless world also is an amazing way to sell this. Mm-hmm. It's like, why would this family survive? Right. You basically right. have to give your characters some kind of design that earns them why did they survive? They all like, know
2: sign language. They all know sign yeah. language. So they
1: can talk to each other and nobody else can. Yeah. Like, it makes yeah. sense and it, it's just really smart writing. It
2: but also creates a, a level of tension as well though because if you can't hear, you can't hear if you're making sounds. Exactly. You mm-hmm. can't hear if you did something that messed up. So like, it's also a danger which mm-hmm. which is also, there's so much, the character design in this movie is great because everything was tuned to maximize danger and problems for this family <laughs> you know it's like she's about to have a baby like right. she's about to like burst a baby out of her which will not <laughs>
1: can we not describe it that right. way <laughs> it's the worst way i've ever heard birth described <laughs> like honestly
2: it's a really traumatic scene i think i'm just like getting the energy of that scene up um
1: No, you're right. Yeah. And that that is another, it's another (laughs) smart character design where like you're, it's kind of a ticking clock, right? You're putting a ticking clock into the movie the minute that we cut from the cold open essentially into that. And, and it's a really effective ticking clock because it's, it's an unpredictable element, but one that you can't get rid of or leave behind, right? Right. And so it's just a really smart narrative device.
0: And I feel like, yeah, it is so intelligently constructed that, you know, in general, I don't like scary movies. And I feel like this movie is... Me neither. Hey. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, But, but, and I feel like this movie is chock full of, like, scary movie things. Sorry, Trisha, again. Um... (laughs) I lived. Good, yeah. That would normally turn me off, but I feel like because of the intelligent construction of it, it it all feels earned, and that almost just makes it more frustrating to watch. Like, it was just so funny. I was watching it with my girlfriend, and she was having a very vocal monologue throughout the entire (laughs) thing about how she was feeling, which echoed basically everything I was feeling at first viewing. And you see her... Uh, you know, when it reveals Emily Blunt, like time has passed and then you see that she's pregnant. You're like, oh, wow. OK. And then there's a moment where you're like, you realize, wait wait a minute, movie. Yeah. Are you going to do this to me? Yeah. And then yeah. like when it starts doing it, you're just like
2: and when, when hey, she goes movie. into labor, like right. that might be the most stressful feeling I've ever had in a right. movie theater. Like that whole sequence is mm. so stressful with
0: the nail to the nail. Yeah. Like, Chekhov's nail. Make it worse. <laughs> make it worse. Like, yeah. It, it like stretches it to the point where it, like <laughs> it's almost unbearable it's almost yeah. unbearable or it but is unbearable a, but in a beautiful way right and then <laughs> yeah. it, it does crescendo and climax in this beautiful way with her scream and it, it right you know, it's the, almost the payoff is
3: bursting great. a baby out bursting <laughs> a baby out.
1: <laughs>
3: she's screaming wow I feel like it's almost not even a horror movie as much as it is definitely a, isn't it's like a suspense a... <laughs> <laughs> It's a what?
2: suspense.
0: That's how I would say it. Yeah, the British way.
3: It's it's a suspense movie that has. I feel like neither way sounds right now. It <laughs> <laughs> sounded um, right, <laughs> but yeah, it's it's like it's like, it's like a thriller that a thriller. has these horror elements to it. Right, and I think that like yeah, it's a scary movie, but I don't think of it as a scary movie. I think of it yeah, as it's a, not horror. It's not. Right. It's not trying to get it's
2: under your gory. skin yeah.
1: in
3: like a
2: grotesque way. It's it's about the suspense. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Um, I often think about the difference between horrors and thrillers. Like basically, I don't know. And this is a very simplistic way of thinking about it, but basically, how many people die, right? Mm-hmm. Like, ask yourself that question. And and if the number is like more than four, it's a horror movie. And if Infinity it's, War,
3: interesting. <laughs>
1: how many named characters? Anyway, but just like, like all War. of them. <laughs>
3: but just like
1: when I went into this movie, you know. The cast is so contained, and of course, you know the contained thriller is in itself a subgenre. And this, mm-hmm. even though it's like wide open space, is still a very contained thriller. Yeah. And actually, the film does a really good job of establishing because th- this is one of the hardest things to do in a contained thriller. Again, I just wrote one; it was very <laughs> difficult. But one of the hardest things to do is elegantly like establish some of the logistics of the containment right, like right? why like, do you
2: have to stay contained right, right.
1: exactly w- what is keeping you in this place and also like what's the layout of it and especially on the farm there are many buildings and so it's like you have to do a really good job and so that scene right at the the opening where he goes um up to the top of the grain silo and you can see the whole thing you see the lights and the fields and everything that they have you see exactly where the truck is positioned it doesn't feel like it's exposition, but it is because we need that information in order to understand how contained this is. Right. But again, because of a small number of characters, you're not really worried that, like, everybody's going to die, right? Because other than uh, if they do, there's no movie. So you have, you know, six characters, essentially. We're going to lose a couple of them, probably. Otherwise, there are no stakes. But we're not going to lose... All of them. And so that's kind of what makes it a thriller. It's about how are they going to survive this? And then the fun of watching it becomes about the ingenuity of the characters and about the ingenuity of the screenwriters. How are they going to push this high concept all the way out and all the way out and continue to provide surprises? That's what makes a contained thriller fun to watch.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, and I think one thing they do so well in this movie, I, I shouted at that earlier, but it just make it worse. Yeah, <laughs> think for
1: sure. It's a good
2: lesson and make it worse. Just
1: The Grain Silo. Like yeah. just everything. Oh my god. Like they, every
2: sequence of this film, they made sure to like mine it for mm-hmm. like how could this be even more horrible for this character yes. in this moment? How could it be more dangerous, more impossible to escape? But somehow they do, and mm-hmm. usually when you're writing, your first thought is, "Well, I can I can write my way out of this. I know how to get them out of this situation," and it's it's a real challenge to like take it to the place where you're not sure you don't know how you're gonna get yes. them out of it. Mm-hmm. You do have to go there in a movie like this. You have to write it to a place where you, as the writer, probably don't know at first how to get out of this, and because the, the audience
3: can't know, you know. Yeah, that's the whole I point. Mean, I love that feeling of watching a movie and going, I. I have no idea how anybody right. could possibly get out of this right now.
1: I had that exact experience writing this script that I just <laughs> finished. I had an outline for it. And, um, you know, I've talked to you guys a lot about how much I outline and I like don't like surprises and I don't, <laughs> I don't, I'm not very woo woo about screenwriting at all, but I, I got my character into a situation and I was like, I know exactly how he's getting out of this. It's not that big of a deal. And so I just kind of, trapped him more and more and more and then i was like literally he's in a corner i have i had a character that's trapped in a garage
3: oh is the is the is it like paint is trying to get him <laughs> right right what guys
1: paint, no.
0: paint yourself into a corner
1: yeah
3: do you, go. Go. Oh. Do you guys want me to go
1: <laughs> I, you want would, you please.
3: I want you to stay right thanks
1: <laughs> but I, I got i wrote this character into a a like, basically difficult situation that there really, truly was no way out of. And then the thing that I was like, the only thing I can think for him to do is this very extreme, dark, confronting his, like, deepest fear action.
2: Mm. Perfect.
1: Yep. It turned out to be, but it was, like, quite a...
0: A journey to get there. It
1: was a journey to get there. And, yeah. and you know, even if... even I don't know. I'd, I'd be interested to hear more, you know, from Beck and Woods, but, like... I wonder if there was some of that and John Krasinski if they were just like no this isn't difficult enough yet right, right. like mm. these characters are actually quite prepared so you have to kind of take away and strip away all of the preparation they've done you have and the nail is a great example of how the nail is a great example of how to take away preparation well in the original
3: script like one of the big set pieces is a silo a vertical silo so like i think it's the father who is going up 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 as the thing is chasing him and it's sort of like yeah what do you do when you are like and there's even a graph of like this silo is this many empire state buildings (laughs) or whatever Mm -hmm. this fraction of an empire state building um but the point being as you said like there is no there how do you escape from that there is no escape from that you know And, and like putting the character in that impossible situation And it reminds
0: me of a a quote that Greta Gerwig gave uh, in an interview about Little Women, where she was talking about her writing process. And she said that writing is just sitting with the problem. Mm. And I was like, yeah. yeah, that really resonates where it's like that that is what the hard part of writing is you get to a point where you don't know what to do. And then your job, you are a writer, your job is to sit with that problem until you figure it
2: out. I'm so frustrated with that reality because <laughs> yeah. like I like to be productive. Like I like to be productive and just have like, you know, I, I did my work today. Like I got something done. Like I, I, when I'm producing or directing or things that have like tasks associated that you can like check off and like, oh, I I finished this part of the process. And man, when I'm writing by myself and I'm like, I don't know how to solve this problem. I don't know. Maybe this is the wrong protagonist. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe this, maybe that. And and all you have to do is,
3: all you can do is like sit with it and like think about it for a long time. (laughs) But I think there's something freeing about saying that's what writing is. Because instead of saying... It's okay. It's okay. Instead of saying the problem means that you're not being productive, it's not that. It's that part of being productive is sitting with a problem. You know, I've... Like when I used to work with like spreadsheets and stuff, I was like, I'd rather spend four hours teaching myself how to make a formula that can do this thing Mm -hmm. that would take me 10 minutes to do, than have to do this thing for 10 minutes every time I have to do it. You know, preach. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But it's like, there's something so satisfying. It's like, yeah, maybe you didn't actually get from point A to point B in that day, but you spent the time to like figure out that problem. It's a weird analogy, but like, I think it's the same thing really yeah no, I think that's
0: a that's super important because yeah writing is super hard, so you have to equip yourself with the proper attitudes to tackle all of these things, and I feel like that right. is an attitude that for me kind of led to creating lessons from the screenplay even of just like there's the easy way, but I want to force myself to do it the hard way to learn the like the fundamental thing that's gonna work more or less every time like spend the spend the time to do it the hard way so that you know you have the tools to face the problem, not just you figured out how to jump past the problem. Um, Yeah. Writing is hard.
1: I mean, that's absolutely true. It just also really reminded me of what we were talking about um, when we were talking about heists. Um, So like in the mission impossible um, video that we did, and then of course in the oceans 11 conversation that we had, we were talking about how like everything needs to go wrong and um, like sort of the rule of, the less we know about the plan, the better it can go.
0: Mm-hmm. But the
1: more we know about the plan, it needs to go really, really badly, basically. Right. Otherwise, we don't want to see it. So, you know, so the, the situation where we see like, okay, the kids are like painting, they're soundproofing the walls and we have this box to put the baby in. It's the baby <laughs> box.
2: So traumatic. Sorry, Bird Sandra box. box. <laughs> baby <laughs> box.
1: But but like those things and So those things, we see how the plan is supposed to work, but the minute that they get there, like, the basement gets flooded, the soundproof room gets flooded basically the second she gets in there, and then the creature is down in there, and so we have to take the baby out of the baby box, and so that plan is basically ruined almost as soon as it starts. So we know the plan. It goes terribly. Now, how she's going to get through labor we do not know. They do not tell us. And so that's what makes that entire sequence so like, <laughs> I think I still have nail it's marks in the palms of my hands. It's excruciating. Yeah, it is because we don't know how they're going to do it. Now, it turns out they do have a plan and the plan works perfectly. Right. But because we don't know the plan, the fun is watching it right. unfold. Right. So yeah. the golden rule of the less we know about the plan, the better it can go still applies. Yeah. Right.
3: I have a a statement I would like to make. Emily Blunt. Yes. Yes. Yeah.
2: Thumbs up. I was telling Michael earlier like, when she's just sitting alone in her Dead child's room and just <laughs> crying Holy like crap. like it's just it it feels so authentic and beautiful and not overacting and not over anything it just feels right and feels like, like specific a... in the emotion yeah like somehow she, was, she like goes through every emotion in this movie because I was yeah. just thinking like yeah like what do you tell me blunt for this scene just like sit here and feel about All your dead feelings. about yeah. your dead son like and right. she
3: just did it and it looks perfect and it's just perfect it's also amazing <laughs> that they like either were about to, or I think recently become parents. Like They both had of them. recently both Yeah, so I think to them it was just like, it was very, I mean, uh, probably difficult, but also really useful to be able to use that sort of feeling to to direct And yourself. John
1: Krasinski has said that to him, this movie is about parenthood. He yeah. wanted to make a movie about parenthood, about the fear, like the overwhelming love, but also Absolutely. just like the gut level fear that you have every time you have a kid. And, and, like and every moment of having a kid. To
3: me, we're seeing like more and more horror movies be about a specific theme. It's not like, what if there were crazy things or whatever? It's like, <laughs> right. it's like no, like Get Out or A Quiet Place or even something like Parasite, which isn't quite a horror movie, but it's almost like treated like a horror movie. Right. It's almost like presented like horror, um, where you have these things that it's like, no, this, the medium, we're using the medium, we're using the premise of the movie to talk about one specific uh, idea in the way that A Quiet Place does.
1: Alex feels that way about Midsummer.
3: Yes, <laughs> maybe I'll write a video about it
2: someday. Trisha,
3: <laughs> we'll all watch it. <laughs> uh, so
2: I was going to say that picking up on that theme of parenthood and the deep fear of mm-hmm. parenthood. There's also the the insane feeling of responsibility. Yes. and the regret, and that that scene in the in the basement, whatever soundproof place, when she's talking about I could have carried him, like oh. like that is that strikes yeah. such a honest chord with me because it's like when a tragedy happens when, when something like that maybe could have been prevented if something went a different way the like the torture especially a parent gives themselves over that yeah. kind of a th- like it's just that that that's such a true moment for me in the movie of like this is what this movie is about basically is as a parent worst nightmare happens and you spend years going over in your head, how could I have not let this happen? And it's just, oh, it's it's like so heartbreaking.
1: One thing that I think makes that scene work so well is the switch from subtext to text Mm. without a blink, like basically Mm. without a blink. As as
3: Krasinski does like the slow turn. Yeah. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Because the subtext is, it's like there at every moment, right? Like every single conversation that these people have with each other, every second that they're together the presence of beau is there with them it's a ghost for everybody right Right, the whole family exactly and so for them to not address it textually and not talk about it in conversation or whatever and then in that moment where they're talking about something else like logistically like the kids are fine they're fine they're like over there they know what to do they're da 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 and then she's like i could have carried him and like th- she even says it that way It comes out of of nowhere. I don't think they ever say Bo's name, really. Right. Right? So it's just that it's the pronoun him, but we immediately know. And as an audience, it gives us that like, wait, you're going to talk about the thing now. and In the same way that I think it does often in real life where Mm -hmm. feelings are hidden underneath the surface. And then Mm. the minute someone starts to talk about them for real... Everything changes, in the way that we perceive what's happening in the conversation just changes our emotionality and our investment in it.
2: it, it it's so well placed in the movie too, because it's at this pivot point of, you know, things just got real, <laughs> things are real bad. What are you going to do, John Krasinski? <laughs> like, yeah. And, and she really challenges him.
0: You know, she basically assigns him to death.
2: Yeah, she yeah. does. She's like, protect our
0: children at all costs. Like, Go. Promise me. Yeah. It's like, okay, well. Bye, John. <laughs> yeah, right?
1: Right. But it's so... It, it cuts at that thing. That, that little bit of dialogue cuts at that thing of... It's not even about the lives of our children, although, of course, it is. It's about who are we.
2: It's an it's a identity question. It's an identity yeah, question.
1: Yeah. Who are we if we can't protect them, right?
2: Like, what's even worth... Like, why are we living this right. life if we can't keep exactly. our kids alive? yeah
1: And ugh, that's, like, ugh, one of those questions that doesn't have an answer and it's just... Torture to watch people wrestle with it's really, really well designed, ghost and well mm-hmm. placed, and it just mm-hmm. loads everything. And everything in the movie is just—I was going to say the word "pregnant," but <laughs>
3: <laughs> pregnant with meaning. <laughs> yes.
1: It's pregnant. I
3: also want to shout out um Noah Jupe and Millicent yes. Simmons real yes, quick because yes, 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 they're yes. so awesome. Like, first of all, Noah Jupe is, is like in everything now because he was in Ford v Ferrari and mm-hmm. Honey Boy different accents, different characters. Like he's just knocking out of the park. Yeah. Yeah. And then Millicent Simmons to actually cast a deaf girl in this part. And my girlfriend actually studies ASL and we watched, as soon as the movie was over, she said, I need to look her up because I'm pretty sure she's like, she could just tell by the way she sort of her eyes like the way she sort of like scanned other characters and like looked at their entire face and everything and obviously that's probably th- that's what she does in real life but also she's an incredible actress and like have that on top of it is really really cool to have not just one but two phenomenal child actors in your movie and the kid who plays Bo he's only in it for 5 minutes but he's, <laughs> he's great also, too he's yeah. great yeah yeah
1: i was reading that uh, they like people who you know are deaf and, and have been like watching it and reading the ASL instead of the subtitles or whatever. Like, have talked about how actually well studied John Krasinski and Emily Blunt and, some, mm-hmm. and the other Noah Jupe um where they actually kind of have different like voices essentially mm, in ASL accents. because not everybody not everybody signs the same way. Right. But like learning to sign first of all, but then signing in character so like John Krasinski is not signing as John Krasinski he's signing as Lee and like how sharp his movements are and like decisive and like forceful his movements are like trying to be this patriarch and like be Mm. in control and so like I was reading about how yeah deaf people who have seen this have been like this is cool and I'm sure Millicent Simmons was like coaching basically that was like yeah that's too soft like you know probably
0: and they, they put a lot of effort into making them all feel like a family too. Yeah. Like they would have mm. family gatherings and invite the, the kids actors' parents over so they could see what they're like with their parents and like kind of cool. form this this new family. You when know, so you have a small it helps cast. when you're married too. Like well, to the, sure, yeah, the, the actor, well, it, yeah. But
1: also young actors. Like I've worked right. with a lot of child actors, and that's what you do. You just have play dates and hang out and like mm-hmm. try to establish rapport.
3: Mm-hmm. I forget if I mentioned this on the podcast before, but I played Biff in a, De- a Death of a Salesman once, and my friend played happy and he's one of my best friends in the world. And the couple who played a married couple played Willie and Linda. And it was just really cool because we had the four of us would get together with the director for readings and stuff. And it was like two of us, two pairs of us were already family basically. And then the four of us became a family and it just sort of like added so much to it. Mm. I think you can do that when you have a movie that is, so contained and so small. I think, like, John Hughes used to do this with, like, he, all of his yeah. uh, kids. He would just bring the them over to pack. his house, the Brat Pack. Yeah, and like, they would just all hang out together. So that way, when you, you say action, basically, like, you are seeing these characters who actually, like, love each other and uh, have already formed that bond.
1: Well, yeah, there's a lot of trust, right? Like, mm-hmm. actors are able to be trusting in a scene so like they can put themselves out there and give more generously in a scene if they like know the person they're acting with especially if that's a familial relationship so
0: and i feel like it pays off like a million percent and it's like Mm -hmm. very easily this movie could be subpar and really bad and i feel like the way it was executed from top to bottom makes it something not just good, but special. It's special. Yeah, Yeah. for sure. It
3: seems like one of those movies that would just be like, Oh, it's another one of these. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't. It's
1: a $20 million movie Mm -hmm. that made $350 million. Good deal. So yeah.
3: So let's make a sequel.
1: (laughs) I mean, clearly they have a lot more money for the sequel.
0: Yes, indeed. Before we wrap up, there are two little things that I just, I feel like I need to point out. I just need to say out loud. Uh, the bathtub scene is great and stressful. Partially, I think, because it references another cinema classic involving a bathtub. What Lies
2: Beneath?
1: Whoa. Not what I thought you were <laughs> going to say. Trisha was
2: pointing at Michael, so excited to
0: I
1: hear I was like, are you going to say Psycho? But okay.
2: Oh, no. Psycho is a shower. What
0: Lies Beneath did for bathtubs what Psycho did for shower. That's what it said on the DVD
2: cover Listen, of what Lies I Beneath. was a huge What Lies Beneath fan mm-hmm. back in the day. That was like... A big deal. Robert yeah. Zemeckis. Robert Zemeckis. Mon- he- Harrison Ford's
0: only villain role ever. Spoiler alert. <laughs> uh, <laughs> anyway, so I'm going to call that out. And then there's this weird thing that bothers me. I love John Krasinski. But the moment in the forest when they come upon the guy who's just lost his wife.
3: Are you going to talk about how he, like, he can't shush?
0: Well... Th- the way he shushes. Yeah, he like yeah. he
3: like puts his. Yeah, he like puts it. Trisha like, this is a visual medium. He like not, <laughs> uh, he like.
2: No, he I like
1: just wanted- if I'm like I want to know if I'm I'm correctly imagining what you guys are talking yeah, about he which like, is the he curvature his of nose. his finger yeah, yeah. when
2: well, he like rubs it past his nose really
0: right. it's like he's so intense about how he's, that the finger comes and then it hits his nose and it brings his nose around <laughs> and then it goes past so he's like he's really intense about the shush but I it never like, like
2: crosses his lips or like lands on right. his lips I feel like yeah. he could have
0: aimed a little better I don't know
2: <laughs> also the old guy that screams is a little bit goofy he reminds me of the bitter beer face in those old foster oh <laughs>
3: Do you know who he actually is? He is the um, chief uh, chief of police of Malibu from Big Lebowski.
1: Oh, nice. Stay out of
3: Malibu, Lebowski. <laughs> anyway, those are
0: really important Leon things Russom. I needed to do. Yes. yes. To bring up.
1: Yeah. Uh, Thank you for bringing those up. <laughs> Hi, everybody. We love making Beyond the Screenplay for you, and we love interacting with listeners. I'm constantly checking our iTunes reviews. One of my favorite recent reviews is from Poop1, who said... <laughs>
3: Thanks, Poop1. (laughs) That's who took that username. Damn.
1: Uh, Poop1 said, This podcast is amazing. I have four friends who can't hear me say, Yeah, you saw that as well. The perspective is different between the folks, but never negative on one perspective. I love the four of them being different and still respecting the thoughts of a different idea of a film, life, or where we all come from.
3: That's an awesome review, Poop1. You can think of us as poops two through five. (laughs) It's weird that I feel strongly about being (laughs) Poop3.
1: But... Please, please, if you are enjoying the podcast, we love hearing from you. And so please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or, of course, you can reach out to us on social media. We love interacting with listeners and we love making Beyond the Screenplay for you.
0: Great. Why don't we go around and talk about what lessons we're going to take
3: from A Quiet Place. Brian, would you like to start us off? Sure. Uh, One of my big lessons, which is not my main lesson, is what I mentioned, which is like if you're going to make a horror movie, like make it be about something. And Mm -hmm. I love that. Um, But because I did read the original script for our video, the one thing that that really struck me, the original script is nothing like the movie in the sense of plot. Like everything is different. Characters' names are different. Their relationships are different. The way the daughter is deaf is different. Like the action sequences are different. But it does really capture the mood of the movie. Like reading that script, I really felt like I was, it almost felt like I was reading the script for a different movie set in the same universe because it felt Mm. like I felt like I was still living in this quiet place world, even though I was reading an entirely different story. Um, And two movies that come to mind, two scripts that I've read in the past couple of years are *Goodwill Hunting and Moonlight. And those are both scripts where I just felt like the soul of the movie was in this script. And mm-hmm. it's, it's sometimes it's hard to even tell why. Moonlight, like Barry Jenkins would just write something like, uh, oh, they're standing next to this building. This building's been here for a hundred years or something like that. Like that doesn't mean anything to a director trying to make the movie. He's making his own movie. But like, um, and uh, at one point, th- we see some kids on the beach and... Uh, they're just playing and enjoying the water. This is the last. We'll never see them again. And like you, mm. when you're watching the movie, you don't know you'll never see them again. But when you're reading the script, that sort of like punctuates this moment of like, pay attention to what I just showed you. We're going to move on. And I think that's really interesting because when you're writing a script, you don't want to write too much that is not actually filmable. <laughs> like, right. you, like you can't <laughs> translate. But I really do think that there is something to capturing the the mood and the soul of, the story you are trying to tell um and i think i would not recommend going as far as Beck and Woods and like sort of making this like gonzo i mean nothing wrong with it like why not yeah. but um but obviously there are going to be a lot of studios who look at that and by page two or like get this thing out of here because this is not a script um but i do think that there are there is something to be said for peppering in those
1: unfilmables those, that are evocative
3: yes Thank you, you're and it's welcome. also it's also voice. You're, you're showing exactly your right. voice, yes. which is which is tough
2: because a lot of times we learn in film school all these rules about screenwriting, yep. like you were saying, like too many action lines in one paragraph, like eh, you can't do that. And yep. and I think it's just there's a tricky balance of there's a reason for those rules. There are ways that scripts are like more readable when they follow these rules, but if you don't have any voice in there, then yeah. you also don't stand out. So there's there's that tricky balance of what's your authentic voice can it be somehow conveyed through the writing right in a way that maybe doesn't always follow the rules perfectly
1: and especially if you have a really unconventional idea for a movie right, then right. maybe you do need to like try to push the rules a little bit and like yeah get creative so they
2: so they see the movie you're trying to make in, right. right in their yeah, heads exactly yeah. because
1: again the reader is the first person you have to get so
2: right yeah trisha
1: Um, So I'm going to go ahead and actually quote a screenwriting professor of mine um, who back in the day told me that characters should be better than real. And yeah, let me... What what does that mean? Yeah, let me get into it with you, Michael. (laughs) Um, Well, basically all she was trying to tell me at the time is that like, so take a normal person who's full of contradictions, but basically boring. You have to turn the volume up on that person in some way. Right. And so actually, one of the things that they tell you a lot in film school is put a character in your script that has some kind of disability. Um, And it's interesting the way that like this character actually in this particular movie, having one of the central characters with some kind of disability, because ultimately what you're looking for in your character is what makes them special or what makes them like extra equipped um, or what makes them like extra disadvantage whatever that is to deal with whatever is going on right and so um thinking about the ways that you can like turn the volume up on a character so like what is the thing about them that makes them particularly you know either disadvantaged in this situation where it'll be extra hard for them to overcome it or like in some way especially equipped so we see this a lot in like your classic archetypal things it's like well harry potter is like you you know he has the protective love of his mother so like he's the boy who lived and so he's extra equipped in some way um and that's you know like sort of a big example but things like a quiet place are another like very small very cool example of something special what makes your character stand out from a crowd of other characters that otherwise would look just like them right and if that's their death then awesome um i recently was re-watching panic room and you have a a t1 diabetic character in that movie which i'm also a t1 diabetic and i was like this is cool like it ends up being a plot device like it is something that makes us special like in some cases disadvantaged but like that's ripe for drama and so you know thinking about stuff like that, um, as you go ahead and like try to craft your characters, like what would make it extra hard for this character or yeah. Why do we focus on them? What's special about them? Thinking about that in character design. And, and sometimes like if there is nothing setting your character apart, just start going through that list of like, why them? Why this person?
0: Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. I think they were back woods said that one of the things I loved about the script was that in the end, uh, Regan's perceived uh, you know disadvantage is her superpower exactly and, right and the the exact opposite for the aliens where their perceived superpower is actually their weakness,
1: right. and that's often the thing is that is that characters who start off at a disadvantage they' they end up being scrappier, more creative, like tougher than characters who like start off having everything. and that's cool,
2: yeah. Absolutely. Alex. I kind of mentioned my lesson earlier which is just uh just how well the character web is d- is designed in this movie of especially I think um the father character and the deaf daughter just like both of them seem to be struggling the most uh with the guilt about yes. what happened and and kind of with each other like almost they, they almost remind each other of that incident and both are taking the, putting the blame on themselves and Mm -hmm. carrying the weight of it and not talking about it. Like we've been saying. And I think once again, if this was just like a straight up horror movie, then I think those other layers could have been left out. It could have just been like a normal family trying to survive, but there's just so much more going on in this film with that unsaid guilt below everything. And yeah, when I went into this film, I was like, Oh, it's going to be a movie about this thing. And it might be really suspenseful and good, but I don't expect more than the one thing. And it gave me way more than that, which was what was so lovely about it.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah,
0: for sure. It's kind of like what you're saying, Brian, like it's about something. It's about characters. It mm-hmm. makes you invest so that you're scared when the scary things right. happen. Also. Right.
2: And really care about them as characters. Like right. I'm so sure. with that daughter character in this movie. Right. Oh, like, yeah. yeah. It's like the
0: main reason I want to see a quiet place too. It's like, wait, there's more. For, okay. Well, I want to see what happens to her. I hope She's okay. <laughs> yeah. Um,
1: she's going to be awesome.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm really excited. Um, yeah, my lesson I think just goes back to sound because uh, I feel like that's the obvious thing here and I think especially like we were talking about earlier how sound can put you in a character's perspective and I feel like so much of writing is trying to do that is trying to make the audience see things through the protagonist's eyes or empathize with them, experience it along with them and in a quiet place, it's so simple. They're just moments where suddenly you hear what the character hears and you are that character and so I think that's just it's a really valuable tool and again like I always say I'm always kind of looking for that like film tool 101 example and I feel like if you want to learn like what can sound do for a movie watch quiet place like yeah there's all of it is here in this movie Mm late bear so it's very accessible Uh, and I think it's just it's a really important thing to keep in your head uh, when writing and especially when directing like sound is such a powerful tool
1: and we didn't To talk about dynamics.
0: Right, which is, well, people have to go watch the video because we talk about it in the video a
2: little
1: bit. We do. Yeah.
2: Well, and earlier you said something about how, you know, like a movie can look kind of, you know, it can be shot in an iPhone, but if the sound is good, it's like a movie. Mm -hmm. And I think it's vice versa too. You can have the the kind of the film student mistake, the classic mistake is, oh, we have like a red camera. We're going to shoot a 4K like movie. It's going to like look so good. (laughs) And then
1: just give Jeff a boom mic. He's fine. Yeah, and
2: then like the sound is awful. And like it doesn't matter how pretty your image is. If the sound sucks, like your movie is amateur. Like it's not going to feel right. And so it's it's interesting how sound is more critical in – even just, like, making a movie seem like a movie mm-hmm. than anything else. Mm. Yeah. I feel like even, like, when when making movies, when you're in the edit, I feel like
0: I'm always terrified. And it's like, is this working at all? And then once the sound is in, suddenly it's like, okay, we made a movie. Right. <laughs> There's right. something here. Right. Uh, I also just had a, like, weird, weird old moment because you were like, the RED camera, it's in 4K. And I was like, God, <laughs> iPhones are in 4K. Like, right. the time when the RED right, was 4K right, right. and was cool, that was... <laughs> That was 10 years ago. (laughs) Uh, Why don't we go around and say what we've been watching recently? Trisha, want to start us off?
1: Sure. So I went over to the uh, Lamley in Glendale and I watched- Lamley? Yes. And I watched um, the Oscar-nominated film from Poland, which is called Corpus Christi. Mm. Did you see it? No. Oh, it's so good. (laughs) Oh, it's so good. Um, I think it's going to be showing for a while longer. So if you live in L.A. or like any major city where you have like an art house theater, they'll probably be showing it. It is excellent. It is about like a, a young man who gets out of juvie in Poland. And he wants to be a priest, but he, of course, has like this record so he can't. And so he ends up in this small town. He's supposed to go work like some menial job But he gets mistaken for being, like, a priest, essentially. And so he kind of just starts masquerading as one. Um, But – which I guess kind of sounds like it could be a comedy. But it's this – it's this actually, like, very, very moving story about this small town that's grieving. Like, the town itself is grieving. There was this horrifying accident. And so, like, as he's there, because he – is just there to care for people. Like the reason he wants to be a priest is because he wants to care for people. And so as he's there and just that love that he has starts to like transform the town. um, It's really beautiful. It's definitely in the vein of uh, first reformed, which I talked about um, on our top 10 podcast. And also this other movie that I'm obsessed with from 2013 called metalhead, um, which is a movie from Iceland, but also about like rural small town, like grief um but it's really, really excellent. It's really well acted. It's directed by, I'm gonna say it wrong, but Jan Kamasa. Um and it's an Oscar-nominated foreign language film from this year. Very much recommend. Cool.
0: Awesome. Cool. Brian?
3: So I went to a double feature 35 millimeter screening of Stanley Kubrick's first two feature films, Killer's Kiss and The Killing. Uh, he also did a movie called fear and desire before that, but he disowned it. And I also saw it this year and I can see why. Um, (laughs) but they're both awesome movies. And I was really excited by just how much I love them. Killer's kiss is sort of like a, just kind of traditional crime noir, but you can just see Kubrick coming through. Like there are some shots and some camera movements where you're just like, wow, this is somebody who like really knows what they're doing. Um, but the Killing is a masterpiece. Like, if you are a Kubrick fan, I recommend both these movies. But if you're a Kubrick fan and you haven't seen The Killing, like I, I've now seen every Kubrick movie, and I'm like, shame on me for not having seen The Killing years ago. All right, I
2: gotta see it then. Yeah, it, right. it,
3: it is so good. It's basically uh, along with Asphalt Jungle, which weirdly both star Sterling Hayden, who um, is uh, Jack D. Ripper from Doctor Strangelove, mm-hmm. um, uh, along with uh, those two movies are basically the sort of birth of the ensemble heist movie like oh uh, we need a bagman and we need a driver and we need a this guy and whatever um, so asphalt jungle is the first but then the killing i i think is basically the second and i think having seen it i'm like every heist movie is just trying to be the killing you're like wow oh that's the town and oh that's uh, oceans 11 or like you see all these things that basically then got picked up by other movies and it's just it's so well done his just his camera work is incredible but there're just so many scenes that are like thematically Really satisfying and just like cool characters, and it gets like funny at some points too, and just exciting. I was like so happy with just how in- how entertained I was watching. So,
1: and moving it at your house, what's that? You want to watch it again? Sure, like, let's do I it. Feel like you've sold at least me and Alex on it, <laughs> Michael. Yeah. You in?
3: I think I've seen The Killing.
1: Oh, really? I
3: think I've seen The Killing. <laughs> <laughs> Don't know. It's a heist movie. <laughs> sounds like a Michael thing. Maybe
2: I didn't make it to the heist part. What are you watching? Alex? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I am watching Devs on Hulu. Ooh, nice. FX on Hulu. Uh, it's the new Alex Garland production. It's a, I think it's a limited series uh, that he wrote and directed, and it's very Alex Garland. It's a, uh, you know, both the upsides and downsides of Alex Garland. It, I, I, I'm a huge fan of his, so of course I was there, you know, day one. And uh, one of the most fun things about it so far is the fact they filmed I think like 80% of it on the UC Santa Cruz campus.
1: Wait, hey! what? Yep. Wait, what?
0: Yes, like I the cam- like like
2: the campus for like this tech company is UCSC. Oh my god. So like this is, like you can see the library, you can see like they they're like the Porter Meadow I think is like the setting for like a big part like Wow. Yeah. Okay. Can you see the
3: tree Michael climbed? <laughs> <laughs>
2: Uh, so yeah, that was just really fun actually. Cause I, it was like, I was dawning on me like, no, this is definitely UC Santa Cruz. That's definitely the library. Yeah. So it's, it's in a cool setting and, you know, Nick Offerman plays, uh, this very interesting role. And it's the super heady sci-fi that I love that Alex Garland is known for now, but there's also that, you know, that, that Fincher quality to it the the almost too perfect almost too staged almost too roboticness to it as well but maybe that's kind of part of the point of this one i don't know you're just
1: selling michael so hard yeah
2: (laughs) right i mean it's it's kind of my my complaint about it (laughs) but um but i it it may be for a reason because this whole thing is about ai and do we even have free will and determinism so it's it's interesting and i'm i'm not 100 sold on it yet uh I'm sold enough to keep watching, but I'm, I'm curious to see where it goes because it's a very, you know, it's Alex Garland. It's, There's it's, two it's episodes weird. that you've seen yeah, as of recording? Yeah, I've seen two episodes so far, okay. and I'm very excited for the third. Yeah, Cool. Michael. So...
0: I've watched a lot of things, but they've kind of all been for projects that we're working on recently. So I, I don't want to talk about them. I've also been rewatching 30 Rock, but I feel like that's cheating. So I'm not going to do that. It is cheating. So I'm going to do kind of a weird one, which is that... So I went to Yosemite a couple of weekends ago, and it was gorgeous and beautiful being in the park. And I had the the one thing that I walked away with, was like, wow, this is so beautiful. It makes me want to play Minecraft. And so I've been playing Minecraft a little bit in my free time. The, the looks on everyone's faces. Yeah, Tricia, like. <laughs> Just, like <laughs> I'm trying we, to
3: get from your assembly to Minecraft in the first place. Yeah. And then I'm thinking about how many, like, six-year-old jokes I can be making. Because
0: <laughs> well, Minecraft is. So also watching A Quiet Place made me th- feel like it captures a lot of what it feels like to play Minecraft as well. <laughs> because it's this, like, survival game where you're kind of sent out and it's, <laughs> Trisha's face is she's amazing. On, she's not with me. Yeah. But it is so it's, skeptical. It's this this game that's that's part survival and as you play you're kind of expressing your personality everyone kind of deals with it differently and you can go exploring and then you know you're going through a forest and you turn a corner and suddenly there's this huge epic beautiful mountain just like Yosemite. Anyway, so there's all <laughs> just these like things like in real
3: life. There are corners in Yosemite?
0: Well, you emerge from the forest And there's this beautiful vista, as in life, as in Minecraft. Anyway, (laughs) just trying to make this as difficult as possible. (laughs) Yep. I've been playing that some in my free time and then also watching videos because there's a million, obviously, videos about Minecraft and sort of these Let's Play videos that are also tutorials. But I've also been watching sports recently. Like, I was in the situation where I had to watch a basketball game, which was very fascinating. You had to? Well, (laughs) yes. Basically, I was in a situation where people were watching it, so I was watching it. And I've been watching StarCraft, which is also an eSport. Basically... I've been watching... Everything
2: but movies. Everything
0: but movies, but it's it's made me kind of like... And movies, I just can't talk about which ones we I've been watching. But it's, it's kind of been an interesting mishmash of all these things that's made me kind of fascinated about how many things can be conveyed with an image and a sound. And I think especially watching A Quiet Place and, and seeing how much sound affects us psychologically, it's kind of made me appreciate... The language of film, but also the language of media, and just that humans can watch different images flashed at them, aligned with different sounds, and we can take so many different meaning, meanings from them. And the expectations we go into one medium really affects the things that we receive from it. And so it's, so it's a little out there, but it's it's, it's <laughs> humans. What are, are you recommending? Humans
3: are crazy, is I'm, what he's saying. Not recommending. Can, he's saying what he's been watching. Yeah, exactly. Sports is really interesting, though, like sports because you have basically is a it live producer the the dramatization of sports uh you have a live producer who's basically has eight camera angles or something, and he is trying to make live drama out of this, so right. like yeah. if one team scores a touchdown, you want to show all the people who are excited about it and all the people who are not excited about it and like there's actually so much going on behind the scenes and it's really fascinating. That's all I think about when I watch is like being in that room and like calling shot the
0: shot.
1: shot I've been in that room. I was a live camera operator for several years and then I also was a graphics operator in a live room like that for a couple of years. And you
3: were the quarterback for the Dolphins for a little while, right? (laughs) Also that too. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
0: That's cool. You'll have to tell me about that sometime. Mm. Well, it was a little
1: bit less like storytelling than you think. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I can tell you that right now. Stories
0: emerge, perhaps. Right. From decisions that are made. Okay. We'll talk about it. Okay. Great. This has been our conversation about A Quiet Place. Let's all go watch A Quiet Place part two, huh?
3: I'm excited. I am very
2: excited. Bye, everybody. We're just going to be watching (laughs) Trisha. Yeah. I'm excited to sit next to Trisha. (laughs)